it's it's real tough. But I think growing up at an early age, um, I never wanted to have to worry about money. You know, I was never we never poor, but you know, we were kind of like lower class to middle class growing up. And I just, you know, I have two brothers and two sisters. So I heard a lot growing up that, no, we can't afford that. No, we can't afford that. And, you know, seeing my parents be stressed a little bit with money and, and I just knew that, you know, I don't ever want to have to worry about money. If I see a t-shirt that I want, I just want to be able to buy it because I like it and not have to check the price tag. Want to not have to worry about money. You know, for every dollar I spend, I want to have $2 coming in. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back, everybody. Another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode 195, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires. This is Clark here with my co-host, Jace. Jace, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing great, man. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. My wife's out of town uh, for a few days here, so I got a couple days before I head back for a wedding, out of town for a wedding. So maybe I'll play some golf tomorrow. Are you playing a lot? Recently, I, I was playing a little bit, but it's funny you mentioned your wife's out of town. My wife's out of town too right now. So I've got the <laughs> got the kiddos by myself. We're on opposite sides of the country. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But no, I was playing. Well, I was playing golf quite quite frequently. I feel like my dad came in town. I played a couple times then, but I haven't played in the last week. Just been trying to catch up and stuff. But uh, hopefully, here we've had some unseasonable rain. Which has caused a lot of issues, even though I've still gone out and played. But yeah, it's kind of weird yeah. for us to have this yeah, much all rain across the country. Yeah, I played for the first time. Uh, let's see, last week, first time of the year, and it was no bueno. But that's pretty on par for me. No pun intended. I'm I'm no good, but it's fun to. Oh no, yeah, right. It's probably had what five birdies or something. Yeah, maybe maybe one par. <laughs> <laughs> So big news in the personal finance space, I feel like over the last couple of weeks was uh, when it became known that Peter Thiel had how much? Five billion in his Roth IRA? Yeah, something to that effect. And you know, just for some context, I guess for our listeners, you know, I think Peter Thiel was probably one of the early adopters of a Roth IRA, first of all. And second of all, definitely one of the early adopters of self-directed um, you know, he made some of those in early investments or early ownership stake and stock and PayPal in there and then just continued to just roll that into all sorts of VC investments. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's rolled that for, you know, all these years, call it 15, 20 years, maybe a little more and gotten some significant returns, obviously invested in some companies that have done extremely well. And it's blown to five million or five billion. Excuse me. Yeah, pretty crazy. I'm just looking at this article on MarketWatch. It says, uh, ProPublica's report used tax documents to reveal the tech giant's account grew from less than $2,000 in 1999. Ross were started in 97 to serve a nose to $5 billion today, thanks in part to investment in privatized securities. Uh, that has Massachusetts Democratic Representative Richard Neal pretty upset, it sounds like. He says, the total amount of money that can be saved in tax-preferred retirement accounts we need to limit. So we must shut down these practices, he says. So anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, on, on one thing, obviously people are going to be outraged. I mean, I think it came about when Mitt Romney had, you know, a couple hundred million or whatever in his when he was running for president. People became outraged. But I think there's a few good 
takeaways and lessons to be learned. So Ross come out in 97, Peter Thiel adopts this in 99, right? So one, early adoption, call it a risk, maybe not, I don't know. But he also took some risk with some of these companies. And it's a a strategy that government put in place. And obviously, most people are not going to have tax-free growth like that because they're not VC investors and they didn't start a company like PayPal. But I think there's some good takeaways for the average Joe. One, early adoption of something. And now that obviously Roth IRAs are much more mainstream, it's, it's, you know, much more receptive. But I mean, heck, the guy did that when it was two years old. Like, I bet you most people weren't even investing in their Roths in the market then anyway. You know, I mean, right. those things didn't really become commonplace probably till the, you know, at 2006, 2007, eight, I don't know. And then after that, same thing with a, a Roth 401k. I mean, most companies and even probably a lot of companies now don't even have those options. It's yep. becoming more normal, but you know, it's, it's taken a while for those to, to be adopted. And then two, taking the risk to self-direct some of that, you know, and, and maybe bet on yourself in, in a business or invest in some, something, you know, real estate or whatever it might be that might get you a, an outsized return like he did. Yeah, it sounds like, I think I read somewhere, I could be wrong, but this is just going off memory here, that he wanted to invest the 2000 in a traditional IRA, and I believe his financial advisor or some advisor told yep. him, hey, no, 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 you should put this in a Roth, it'll grow tax-free, and I believe that was initial shares of PayPal, right? Yep, yep, exactly. So, I mean, that's it, how it, that happened. Home runs, or at least part of it. Yeah, more power to him. I mean, there's, there's two ways to look at that, but I think Take take away the lessons learned and, and apply them in your own life, you know, if, if you're not already. Yeah. All righty. Well, just for a quick recap here, last week we had Greg net worth of 1.9, uh, fully paid for house or about, I think, paid for 350000 um, And he was big on finding freedom, freedom and, and flexibility. And, and as soon as you can find that, that's what happiness is and finding that that flexibility is what stood out to him. And he wished he would have found that sooner. So interesting interview with him. This week we have Logan. He's a nurse, nurse anesthetist, and a real estate investor. He has a net worth of three point seven five million, primarily in real estate. Uh, he's built m- most of his wealth really over the last five to six years. So an amazing journey uh, to where he is today, and obviously tremendously successful. So that's today's interview with Logan. Thanks for tuning into the show week after week. I just want to read a review that we got on iTunes from Spreadsheet Dominator. Jace, how about that? Spreadsheet Dominator, he says, this podcast has been a great replacement of listening to chatty coworkers while I've been working remote since March 2020. Great diverse set of millionaires that have been interviewed. Thanks for all you do from a fellow finance nerd. So thanks for that, Spreadsheet Dominator. If you enjoy the show, we appreciate you leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to. It helps us grow the show and reach new millionaire interviewees. So thanks for joining us again for episode 195. And without any further delay, let's get into the show with Logan. Logan, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Um, So right now I am predominantly buying single family houses, uh, usually kind of off market, distressed, we're fixing them up, kind of doing the burr model for those. And then um, still working a couple days a week in anesthesia as well. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? It's about 3.75 right now. Awesome. And that is broken up how? Uh, You know, it's like predominantly in um, real estate and in cash. So I think when I did my numbers here, 
I have about 90,000 in um, cash value life insurance, about 10,000 in a self-directed 401k. And then I'm currently on about $200,000 in cash. And then the remaining is in um, equity and properties. And, and some of those properties, <clears throat> we're still in the process of like finishing their remodel. So they're, so we own them outright without a mortgage. So once we go ahead and refinance and put some debt in place, that'll probably free up another 600000 in cash. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. And I want to get into to your real estate. Obviously, that's a big chunk of your portfolio and, and get into the details there. But let's just rewind here a little bit and, and go back to the, the beginning of your journey. So you said you work a couple of days a week in anesthesia. How did your career evolve into where you are now working two days a week? Maybe go back to, to maybe your high school, college days. Yeah. So, you know, in high school, I like my passion was football and that's all I wanted to do. I was a C student in high school, didn't really ever study. And then I ended up tearing my ACL, played a little bit of college football, tore my ACL again, uh, just kind of stay healthy. So the second time I tore it, I said, you know, I've always been interested in the human body. So why don't I go study medicine? <clears throat> so when I was doing a pre-med, I actually ended up switching degrees and um, I shadowed a, a plastic surgeon. He kind of turned me on to the field of nurse anesthesia. So I, I looked into it and I switched careers from pre-med to do nurse anesthesia. And uh, the whole time, you know, I, you know, I was serving tables and making a little bit of money while I was when I was in college. And I just kept thinking, oh man, like once I'm a once I'm an RN and I'm making you know seventy thousand dollars a year, then I'm going to be you know having more money coming in than coming out, right? And then of course you graduate, you work as a as a nurse and you're still paycheck to paycheck, right? It takes, you know, months to pay off, you know, a $5,000 credit card debt. And and so then the whole time I was thinking, well, once, once I'm a nurse anesthetist and I'm making over $200,000 a year, that's when I'm going to, you know, be living the good life and, and having more money come in that's going out and not knowing what to do with this extra cash. And then of course, you know, that happens and you're still like, dang, you know, it still takes, you know, quite a lot, little bit of time, even when you're a high income earner to save a substantial amount of cash. And so kind of along the way, you know, I, I started studying real estate probably right when I just graduated working as an RN, which is a 2009. And um, I was, you know, listening to, um, you know, I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast, listening to reading different books. And um, I kind of just got indoctrinated into thinking that real estate would be my key to becoming financially free and, and at the end of the day, quote unquote, wealthy. So did you start into real estate back in 2009 then? Yeah. So, you know, I always had the the, the dream to go and do nurse anesthesia um, because I wanted that security of a high income. And so I was willing to work my butt off to get, you know, straight A. So I was a straight A student in college. Once I tried, I just kind of put the same work ethic towards that. So I was willing to work my butt off to, you know, achieve that high income. And, and pay the sacrifices for that so that I had a good fallback plan. So if, if investing didn't work, I always knew I had this baseline income from a, a high paying job. But, but I did not invest during that time. I was really tempted in like 2012, 2013 because I had some income. I was living in Las Vegas. I saw the market prices had dropped like 60%, but I knew that I was going to be going to graduate school for anesthesia. And, and I really didn't want to take on the liability of having a rental and having zero income. And, and being, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week in school. So, so I, I held off until I graduated and I started working as a CRNA, which was in August of 2015. So 2015, you make your first real estate investment. Was that in a single family house? 
So in 2015, I graduated and really I had like 15,000 in credit card debts because, you know, your student loans run out and you're kind of living off of whatever. And so I just worked and saved. And, um, and in 2016 is when I made my first purchase. Uh, so I started kind of doing, doing what everything I, I read about. Like I, I consumed a ton of information, but I didn't have a ton of clarity on what I should actually be doing based on my goals. So I was kind of doing everything. I was doing bandit signs, yellow letters. And I mean, here I was making $250,000 a year and I'm, I'm taking phone calls from, you know, people and, and putting out bandit signs at four in the morning before I go to the hospital and do anesthesia. And, uh, probably around June of 2016, I actually got my first, you know, good, good lead in, in the house we ended up closing on. And it came from a Facebook ad. Um, so I met with the, met with the sellers. They wanted to relocate, um, ended up purchasing the property for around 41,000, which is, you know, at the time, I mean, I was like, you know, even though I was making good income, I was still kind of scared because it was a big purchase, had never done it before. And I was kind of thinking of any excuse I could to kind of get out of the, the transaction. But the seller was, was really counting on me to come through. So I felt this obligation because I told them that, yeah, we could buy your house and, um, tried to wholesale it and no one wanted it. And, and so I said, you know what? I, I'm just going to go through with this. Like the numbers all make sense. And, uh, so I partnered with one of my friends on that very first deal. And, um, we bought it, we fixed it up and, uh, instead of renting it out, um, we, we gave it to a product management company. They, they took forever and I'm like, you know what? I can do a better job. So I went and I, and I actually used, uh, like an owner finance strategy on this first house to where we bought it for 41. The rehab was about 12,000. So we're in it for about 53 and we turned around and we sold it for $99,000 on a 10 year note at 10% interest. And we took $2,000 down, which, which is a little bit too light for a down payment but 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 what happened with that is that all of a sudden i started receiving one thousand two hundred fifty four dollars in income and i was doing the math i was thinking well hold on you know i only put fifty three thousand dollars into this and obviously i had a partner but i we only put fifty three thousand dollars into this and it's spinning off one thousand two hundred fifty four dollars a month and at the time i had about one hundred ten thousand dollars in student loans and i was paying about nine hundred dollars a month and that was on a 10-year loan as well. So in my mind, I thought, wow, you know, I kind of just traded this $54,000 in to pay off my $100,000 student loan debt because it was covering the payment plus a few extra $100 in cash flow. Okay, lot, lot, lots to go here. And, and so just real quick, we'll just keep going with this this property. But let me back up just for a second. So you bought it in 2016, <clears throat> you said, right? Your first property? Yes. And what was your net worth at that point? <clears throat> oh, I mean, if you take like, Student loan debts, you know, I, I was negative, you know, because I had one hundred ten, hundred fifteen thousand in student loans, but um, I saved up about twenty six thousand dollars in cash, and that was just through working and you know living frugally, you know, to the point, you know, I'd save most of my income, but I was able to pay off all the credit card debt that I accumulated at the end of school, and uh, and just save the money from every paycheck, and so I, I guess you know, in cash, I had about twenty six thousand. I didn't really have any major debts at the time. Okay, interesting. So you've made this all in the last, what is it now? We're mid-2020 recording this October, mid-October 2020. So you've made all this in the last four years. Yeah, or yeah. Five exactly. years, right? Four and a half, give or take. Yeah, probably about four years. And I guess I bought it like, you know, July of 2016. So four years and a few months. Wow, wow. And, and just for our listeners, Logan's taking this call from a hotel. So in case there's some background music, right? I hear some R&B or something behind you. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not what, my foot. That's what this is. Um, okay, so let's keep rolling with this deal. How, so you, you talked about all these different methods that you to, to find the properties. How did you find this first one? 
So this first one came from a Facebook ad. You know, I was just kind of the be all do all person in, in the business. And um, I don't recommend doing it this way, but that's, I was from a Facebook ad. Okay. And then you reached out and you said you did owner financing and it cash flowed from there. So bit, let me just ask you big picture on the real estate portfolio. How many different properties and are they all single? You said single family, right? For a lot of them, fix and flips and the Burr method, but are they all single family or is there different stuff mixed in there? Yeah, so I have I have um, one 16 unit, which is really eight duplexes side by side, you know, right on the same road, and then the rest are all single family houses. Um, and so currently, I have 55 units, and I think I've purchased and uh, like 60 units over the last since 2016 till now. So I've sold five of them outright, where we flipped it and sold it. Uh, I carry back financing to where I act as the bank, and I do owner financing on four of the properties. And then the rest are all rentals. Wow. So I, I, sh- I shouldn't have even asked it, right? Because as soon as we hit 4 million or 3.75, you're at, right? In four and a half years. I mean, the obvious question is you're increasing your net worth if you average it out by a million dollars a year. So how did this all happen so quickly? Well, I really think it's like, it's it's a snowball effect. You know, um, it felt really slow starting off. So to do like a little quick, I guess, overview. Um, in 2016, we bought that property. I bought a primary residence um, with 5% down. So I did like an I did an 80% first loan and then a 15% second loan to avoid the PMI. And I put 5% down on a two nights of a house probably, but it was like $350,000. But I knew that the price had dropped probably about 20% from the peak. And this was in just a local market. And, uh, and then I bought one more, um, fixed pro, like a renovation property, you know, big project where you had to fix it at the end of 2016. Um, 2017, I bought like two properties. 2018, I bought eight. And then 2019, I bought 23. And then I bought 24 so far this year in 2020. And the way that it's really occurred was I, I started using, uh, private lenders. Uh, where I would give them a promissory note and a first lien position. And I mean, my, you know, my first, uh, private lender, um, I gave him even a 15% return on, on one property. Uh, so he got a 15% return with good collateral position for like six months. But, but the great thing is that when you're borrowing money and you're paying people back on time and you're doing what you say you're doing and you're finding off market properties where you can add value to them, um, I'm, I'm able to get all my money back out of it on the refinance. And pay my private lenders, and and then I'm able to use that money again. So so really, it, it it felt like a lot of work at first when I was doing one house and two houses, and it take me five months to do a rehab because I'm stumbling and trying to figure out how to deal with contractors. And then as I start to kind of figure that side out, uh, when you can refinance all your money out, plus all the money I'm I'm making at my day job where I'm still working full time as a nurse anesthetist. I'm putting back into real estate and then I'm living somewhat frugally as well. You know, things just start to exponentially grow, I guess, because, you know, one of them was a 16 unit purchase. But if you take that away on the other remaining properties, I mean, I have probably negative money into the deal. Like meaning like I've gotten more money back on the refinances that I've put down in the properties. Wow. So you're you're probably working like a maniac the last few years here. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, seriously, you're buying, you said tw- like 20 doors, right? Or 20 or 20 properties. You know, so, so kind of the business plan that <clears throat> I've implemented is I have people that will bring me off market deals. 
I'll quickly analyze them. If I have a question about the the ARV or what it rent for, then I'll I'll ask the specialist, which would be my property manager or broker or realtor. <clears throat> and then I'll have general contractors go out there and give me a bid for the renovation and I'll back my way into the numbers on what I'll offer. And when you build like the team in place, a lot of this stuff is happening. It takes some work up front, but then during the renovation process, the general contractor is handling everything. So I can do five, six, seven houses at a time of renovations as far as from a time management because the general contractors are handling all the subs and making sure everything's done on time. And then I'm just verifying work with pictures and videos. And if I have questions, then I'll have property manager or realtor in town go look at these properties. Because um, I guess I never mentioned this too, that all these properties I'm buying from a distance, except for the first three, <clears throat> excuse me, um, every every other property I bought from over a thousand miles away. Wow. So how are you, well, I mean, lots of questions here. How, how are you finding them then? So I started off by using resources like meetup.com and going to like the REI groups and networking with the people on there and just saying that, hey, I'm a cash buyer. And there tends to be more wholesalers than actual real cash buyers. And um, probably the best thing I did, I mean, it's really just relationships. So, um, you know, you talk to a general contractor here, you talk to the people at the pro desk at Home Depot and Lowe's, you know, you get on Facebook on these these different buy sell sites where they post things and you say, hey, I'm a cash buyer. And then, um, you know, a, a newer wholesaler who I developed kind of a relationship with where he had a property, we kind of just had a good connection. I ended up buying probably like 12 to 15 properties from this one individual. And, and some of the deals were great deals because a traditional wholesaler might list it to their whole buyers list or they might put it on, on a Facebook page. And so you might see hundreds of eyes on there where, where with this individual, he would bring the deal just to me. He'd say, Hey, I got this seller and here's the property and this is kind of what they're wanting. And I would kind of help him negotiate with the, the homeowner, the seller. And, um, and we kind of negotiate together and then we'd work out an assignment fee for him. So when he was getting a good assignment fee and making good money, I was getting exclusive deals that no one else saw. So it sometimes allowed me to get some really screaming good deals. But even so, if you're a thousand miles away, right, you get a great deal. You're a thousand miles away. You're doing a big renovation or a lot of CapEx, right, on a property. How are you comfortable? I mean, you've obviously been comfortable. You, it's been successful, right? But how did you get comfortable, I guess, rather at mm. the beginning in handling these projects and not being able to go check in on them? Yeah. So at first, you know, I, I, I made mistakes and, you know, my third property, which the second one doesn't really count because it was a, oh, you know, we moved in there and we owner occupied it and then we, we moved shortly after and rented it. Um, so there's no renovation there. But the third one, we ended up using the same contractors that I used for the first person. Um, but I was no longer in town. And, you know, of course, I didn't vet the contractors well. And I thought they did a good job on the first one. They should do a good job on the third one. And, you know, they ended up stealing like $4,500 from me where I, you know, paid them too much ahead of time. Like, you know, everyone says you're not supposed to do. And, uh, but, you know, they give you a sob story. You feel bad. You're like, yeah, they're trustworthy. They'll, they'll get the work done. And then, of course, they don't and they disappear and their phone gets disconnected. And, and so, you know, dealing with that, you know, you, you get frustrated and then you realize like, okay, you got to look at the bigger picture and, um, you know, you, you have to take that lesson and learn from it and move on. And the biggest thing that obviously if you can get away with it is you pay people after the work's been completed. And so what I did is I shifted over to find more professional general contractors who actually could manage a budget a little bit better to where they weren't needing money from you to really pay their guys on the last job they did where they had enough account where they could get the job going 
and they could complete, you know, 10, 12, 15% of the job and show pictures verifying their work before I made one, before I paid them one penny. So that I felt very comfortable knowing that, hey, yeah, they're showing me pictures. Yeah, they've done the demolition. Yeah, they've done the drywall. So I'm, I'm happy to send them the money, you know, as soon as they show me the pictures of the work has been done. So you really haven't seen a majority of these homes, have you? Yeah. So I have probably seen like 10 of these houses. And, you know, when I bought like the last, I guess, you know, 47 or so, um, I just went to the area like two weeks ago and it was like my first time there in two years. Wow. And um, so it was, you know, I had like eight properties on my list to drive down and check. So it was a busy trip. But uh, but yeah, so I haven't seen a lot of them. And to me, um, the great thing about that is that it takes the emotional aspect out of it. Because when I was moving from San Diego to Tyler, I, I ended up driving through this uh, city in, in Texas where I invest. And, and I stopped at a property that I had under contract. And my general contractor said, well, we can get it done for, say, like 45000 or whatever the price was. And I remember seeing it and thinking, man, this property cannot be remodeled for 45000 And And I wanted to back out of the contract. And this is after I've already done you know, 15, 16 deals, and most of these being from a distance. But because like when I'm there in person and you're seeing it, it's sometimes hard to envision what it can be versus what it currently is. And and this is as not a super experienced person at the time, but I've done 15, 16 deals. And, um, and even then I was like, I don't think so. Like this isn't for me, but, uh, when you're from a distance, it's just numbers on a paper. So does, does it number out? Yes or no. And, and for me, I want to be all in with the purchase and renovation at like 70 to 80% max. So when I can go ahead and do a refinance, which are usually around 80% of the loan to value with commercial lenders, um, sometimes they're a little bit less, but, um, but if I'm all in at 70, 75%, well, I know I'm going to get all my cash back. So that kind of checks the first box. And then the second box is we do a rent analysis. And I say, well, okay, based on this loan and these terms and, and the property management fees and what I know that, you know, PITI is and a little bit of allocated for, um, maintenance, uh, will I cash flow? And for me, I want to cash flow at least $200. And so if it hits both those criterias, and of course it's not in a really bad area because we don't want to be in D class areas. To me, it's kind of like a no brainer. So how do you find contractors in new areas? So right now I'm currently just investing in two areas and, you know, con- finding the contractors and dealing with contractors is definitely the hardest part because, you know, if I could just say, Hey, I'm going to pay you this price and you're going to do it like you say you're going to like, man, it would be so much easier. Uh, but that, that's definitely where the struggle is. And so, um, networking is, is, is the best place. Again, most uh, investors don't want to give up their great contractors, right? Because they want to keep them for their own jobs. So going to the pro desks, calling them up, talking to them, asking if they have any recommendations. Um, I got recommendations from my commercial lender because they have clients who are general contractors. And so they know, well, these people have their finances order. They keep clean books. They seem organized. And that's kind of, you know, and then just kind of word of mouth. And sometimes you just have to try people out and maybe you try them out on smaller jobs before you give them a full renovation. You try them on smaller things like, hey, okay, I'm going to have you just install flooring or I'm just going to have you just do paint. And just kind of see how they do. Well, that's pretty remarkable they, to, to build that network and to do this many fix and flips. So I want to go back. Just You mentioned r- briefly that you have 90000 in a, in a cash value policy. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how come you have that? Just maybe for our listeners, give a little insight into what that is and why you have that. I don't know that that's been brought up on our show before. So... You know, like it's a, it's an infinite banking concept, and um, I spent a lot of time 
you know, reading about um, whole life and high cash value whole life and, and, you know, is, is it worth it? Is it a scam? And it takes so long to get your money back. And, you know, the thing is uh, some, some real high net worth individuals who I know utilize it and, and kind of seeing the numbers on paper kind of convinced me that, you know, this is probably the way to go. I, I do admit that it is a confusing product as far as there's a lot of variables that go into it. So, um, you know, the whole saying, you know, if it's too confusing, there's probably the benefit to the person telling you, not to you. But I look at it kind of like a jack of all trade. So um, I need to have, when you have a lot of rental properties, you need to keep some cash reserves because that's what's going to get you through the rocky times like we've had with COVID. So um, to me, this is a good place to store cash as opposed to a checkings account, which gives you like no return. With this one, you know, I get a contractual like four and a half percent return. Which ends up being like like this last year, I think I got like six point one percent was my return on my cash value that's in the policy. So so it allows a storing place for my money that gives me a, a return that's better than checking account. Um, it protects you from all, I guess, from being like sued and lawsuits and things like that. Like it's creditor protected, uh, depends on the state, but in Texas it's it's unlimited, I believe. And it also allows me to borrow the money against the cash value. So I'm not actually taking it out, I but I can get a loan. It takes about three to seven business days, and I can get a loan against the value of the of the cash value. So, like I said about being liquid, if I need that money, I can get it in three to seven business days. And then, uh, for like the basic concept behind there is that your money is earning you, you're making money in two places. Uh, one is you're getting that like five, maybe six percent return on your money, and then you're taking that money and you're investing it at an even higher return, hopefully fifteen to twenty percent. That you're then using to pay back the loan, and the thing is, there is a there is an interest rate when you take a loan out, which is about five percent. And so, some people might say, "Well, okay, you're getting five percent return, but you're also paying five percent on a loan, so you're breaking even." And um, and the first year, that's correct. But but if you if you were to borrow, say, fifty thousand dollars, and you got a five percent return, and you're paying a five percent loan, well, after the first year, you know, you paid the same that you earned. But after the second year, your interest capitalizes and you're getting a 5% return on a higher amount, but you're still paying a 5% on that same $50,000. So, so you're earning compound interest, but you're only paying simple interest. So you do make a little bit more money that way than if you just had it in a checking account. It does take about five years for the cash you put in to equal your cash value to equal what you put in. But um, but the plan is that seven years, the policy will pay for itself. So you no longer have to fund it anymore. And um, and I have three little kids. So it also offers protection, of course, of like a death benefit. And so for me, I, I put about 75000 a year into this. And it gives me a little over $2 million in, in permanent death benefit. And so I'll pay for seven years. After those seven years, I'll never have to put any more money in. But that cash value, which which will be... You know, maybe six hundred thousand dollars at the time will continue to earn a five to five and a half percent return for me indefinitely, but it still allows me the ability to use it while I'm alive because I can I can then pull that money out, which is which is a loan, so it's tax free, and say if, even if I'm paying five percent, I can lend that money at ten percent and just make that spread. So it just it just gives me a lot of flexibility. Yeah, I think it's an interesting concept. It's definitely something that hasn't been brought up on, on our show until now. So I appreciate you getting into the details there and explaining that a little bit. So 
On your rentals and going forward, what is kind of the, the strategy and the game plan? Is there a certain number of doors you want to get to or passive income you know, from some of these fix and flips that you might hold? I, I really got to spend some more time and like really focus and get clear on, on what I really want to do. Right now, I'm still just kind of in that growth mode and that go, go, go mode. Um, but, but ultimately I don't think necessarily having a hundred doors or 200 doors is, is going to make me happier. So I need to kind of figure out what do I want out of life and, and where's that balance point right now? You know, I, I see people like, you know, David Osborne, he's, you know, he's got a hundred million net worth and he's got a hundred doors. And so you kind of benchmarks that I'm just arbitrarily going after, but I know in the back of my mind that, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. So, so I keep asking myself that question. Um, you know, should I sell some of the, should I sell some of the properties like the worst performing dogs and pay off, you know, pay off the good ones and, and just sit back on cash flow and, and kind of just enjoy it? Um, should I keep growing? Should I move to self storage? Should I move to multifamily? You know, cause the 116 unit deal I did is performing better than anything else. And, you know, we're doing a, uh, you know, I say we a lot, but it's really, you know, my company. And then I have people that kind of work in the business for me. And, um, so I'm doing like a, a value add where, you know, it's just a simple, you know, we're, we're kind of doing a cosmetic, we're fixing up and then we're able to bump up rents. And because of that, things are valued on a cap rate. Um, you know, so you have your income minus your expenses gives you your NOI. And so when you can bump up your income, um, you bump up your, NOI and, and you divide that by whatever the going cap rate is. That's how you get your value. So, so if it's like a 10 cap, every dollar you increase in, in NOI, you're increasing the value by about $10. And so for, for me, um, I've been able to add like maybe three to $400,000 in value in a 16 unit multifamily, um, in, you know, the last six months simply by just doing, you know, new floors, new paints, new countertops. You know, I see the power of multifamily. I just don't know if that's the game I really want to get into with how competitive it is. And it seems like on the larger deals, you need to really build a big team and dive in those syndications. And I just don't know if that's what I want to play or that's what interests me. Right. It's an interesting conversation, right? And it's an interesting thing to think through. We we just interviewed a guy earlier this evening that talked about that, like the trade-off, right? Between, I guess his was really Jay's time and money. Right. Yeah. In totally. How much he wants to put into his career. But in the same sense, that's what it is here. Right. Do you want to sit back and collect cash flow or do you want to go all, all forward? And anyway, just an, an interesting concept. So, Logan, walk us through just real quick one of these homes from start to close. Maybe you find it through a relationship, right, with one of these wholesalers you mentioned. What price are you buying at? How much are you putting into it? How long does it take to do the job and, and then how do you sell and for how much? Yeah. So, you know, every deal is obviously slightly different. Um, I'll give you just a couple quick examples. So um, I was presented with an opportunity from a wholesaler and uh, negotiate with the wholesaler and we end up coming on a purchase price of $125,000. So the property, you know, I knew the area. I already have five houses in the same subdivision. So I'm very familiar with what the ARV price would be on it. The house was livable and it looked like it was in pretty good condition. So I had one general contractor go out there and give me a bid. And I ended up actually using some handyman and kind of just subbing it out myself because it was more just minor work. So on this property, it was a very light rehab. Uh, we put in um, like $10,000, which was pretty much paint, some flooring, 
um, some, some bathroom upgrades, nothing, just cosmetic and maybe a little HVAC fix, fixing that. And so then call my, my property manager and say, Hey, the property at, you know, this street is ready for, to rent. So they'll go and they'll value it and make sure it's ready to list it. That one ended up, you know, the market's a little bit down right now. So that one ended up renting for 1600. Um, and then I'll go to my commercial lender and I'll say, Hey, I have this property, which we've owned free and clear. Um, I'm ready to get a, a loan on it. So they'll review just my own personal financials as well as a business, but essentially they'll order a BPO. Uh, the BPO came back at $217,000. And so she says, well, we can do a loan at 80% of this value, which I think was like 172. I've had a lot of money out with this lender now. So I know that they are kind of, you know, looking to decrease their LTV. So we end up doing a loan at 75%, um, which is $162,000. So on this property, I purchased it, I think in like June and I purchased it for 125. I rehabbed it for about a month. And then we got a tenant in probably about three weeks later. And then about a month after that, I was able to go ahead and refinance um, $162,000 out, which I was only in it for $134,000. That would end up being like a great deal to where I got $30,000 back more than I put into it. And um, that's kind of the ability to where, you know, I can have like a, like I said, like a negative dollar in some of these properties or probably in the, the, the properties if you average it across all of them. So that was a property where it's obviously not a typical deal. It was a, it was a great burr, I guess, but the property just breaks even. And because I have a lot of cash flow in my portfolio right now, um, after all expenses, I'm, I'm right about 25,000 a month in cash flow. So I'm okay taking a property that might break even, but I get $30,000 in tax free dollars that I can then reinvest and it's at a 5% interest rate. So I know I can beat that or I'm confident I can. I get more tax write-offs as far as um, interest. And I and because it's a larger loan, I have more principal is being paid down per month on the loan. So even though I'm breaking even on that one, I'm still okay with it. Because if I was to take out less and say I only took out $10,000 because I wanted to cash flow you know, $250 a month, I'm really just waiting for that cash flow to accumulate uh, as opposed to taking it today. And so I guess once your once your portfolio can mature enough that you can sustain a, a few break even properties, it's worth taking that. Early on, I'm I'm always advising people to, um, to go for the cash flow. But but that that was like that's not a typical property. That was one where I was able to get a big chunk of cash back. No, no, that's, I was just gonna say that's awesome. How did you get so much leverage on it? How did you get the bank to give you such a big loan if it just broke even? So these properties are all purchased off market. So it's not like the bank can sit there and they don't see this property that listed for 135,000 on the MLS. And then two months later, they have a, a broker would obviously see that it was listed for 125 and they're probably going to appraise the price for somewhere around there where it, it was an off market. So it really comes down to be able to buy the property correctly because you can't really do too much about the renovation. You can't do too much about the appraisal. So it really comes down to purchasing the property correctly. And when there's just people who need to sell for whatever reason, so there's either distress in the sellers or there's distress in the properties, a lot of these wholesalers will go out and they'll find these people and um, and they need to sell and they need to cash out for whatever reason that, that benefits them. And um, and it just comes, I guess, with, with networking. And, you know, I may have six or seven different wholesalers who, who bring me deals. And um, and so if on this one, you know, the, the numbers look good. I, I was expecting a higher renovation. I was able to get away with a little bit less. 
uh, when we when we do a, a BPO on it, um, you know, they're not it's not a full blown appraisal. They're not going inside the house and looking at every crevice. And that being said, you know, I typically do really nice renovations where we have the nicest rental properties in the market. But you can sometimes get away with, hey, we know it's going to be rental. We know it's going to get beat up a little bit. We don't need to put in the the newest things right now. They're still good enough. So let's not rip out the cabinets and put brand new cabinets in when the cabinets are are still decent cabinets. And and I guess that on this one, we just were able to buy it, or I was just able to buy it at, at a good enough price, and that it appraised, you know, probably a little bit higher than what it would actually sell for. But that's who the banks rely on. The banks rely on the brokers to give them the the value of their collateral, and they're just making loans against that collateral. So the brokers are specialists in that area. And and I may disagree with the price. I may have thought that it might have been worth around one ninety or two hundred, but it appraised for two seventeen. So, Logan, let's just wrap up. I know we're coming short on time here. Let me just wrap up with a couple rapid-fire questions. But first, it, looking back at your story, which has really happened in the last four years, right? Not to take anything away f- before that, because you obviously have had a successful career. But are there a couple things that you can point to and say, hey, that's what made me become so successful? That's what made me a millionaire? Was it your work determination? Was it the fear of not succeeding? Was it developing relationships you mentioned? What what things could you point to that are were really crucial to your success? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's real tough. But I think uh, growing up in an early age, um, I never wanted to have to worry about money. You know, I was never, we never poor, but you know, we were kind of like lower class to middle class growing up. And I just, you know, I have two brothers and two sisters. So I heard a lot growing up that, no, we can't afford that. No, we can't afford that. And, you know, seeing my parents be stressed a little bit with money and, and I just knew that, you know, I don't ever want to have to worry about money. If I see a t-shirt that I want, I just want to be able to buy it because I like it and not have to check the price tag. And, um, so I'm kind of frugal by nature because of that. Uh, and, and that's probably something that'll be hard for me to, I think, overcome and, and learn to spend a little bit more, which, which I have, but, I guess I guess it's just that wanting to be wanting not to have to worry about money. You know, for every dollar I spend, I want to have two dollars coming in. So, how much? Let me ask you this, and we've asked this to several other millionaires. How much of your success is due to luck, and how much of it is due to skill? I mean, you know, ten percent to luck, but I I would have been successful regardless. It's just um, how successful would you would you be? You know, uh, Mitch Stevens says, you know, you're not going to get hit by the money truck. You know, you got to stand in the middle of the road, you get hit by the money truck. And so that means you got to be in the game to get lucky every now and then where maybe I get like a home run deal that, you know, I didn't really do much to earn that last deal, that, that a huge um, appraisal. Well, I didn't do a whole lot of value out of that when it was a pretty light remodel. So I did get lucky on a deal like that. But on the previous 40 deals I did, you know, I, I, I kind of grinded it and, and I worked hard. And, and I think that I would be successful regardless of the market because I was just very methodical and, and planned and what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. Yeah, sure. You've obviously done a great job. So how old were you? Let me just finish up here. How old were you when you became a millionaire? I think I hit my first million in net worth, I think in 2018. So that made me like 34. And how much do you spend annually, annual household spending? Um, we spend about uh, about eight to nine thousand a month. So I, I guess uh, you know about one hundred and ten. Oh, hundred. Yeah, maybe less. No, you're right. About you're right. Yeah, hundred k. Okay, clearly I'm an accountant, right? Um, <laughs> what's been your range of household income through your working life? Does your wife work um, inside the home as well? 
No, she's a stay-at-home mom, so we're blessed uh, to have that. Um, and um, the the range, uh, I actually jotted it down real quick. So I made forty-four thousand in two thousand fifteen, one hundred sixty thousand in two thousand sixteen. I made two hundred seventeen thousand, two hundred thirty-four thousand, and in two thousand nineteen, I made three hundred fifteen thousand. And then this year, I'm projected to make about two hundred thousand because I've cut down to two days a week. Wow, way to go! It's like what eight x your income, six x your income over time. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had a couple of years with good earning. But um, but due to the power of, of real estate and, and the way I had my tax set up, I was able to pretty much kind of keep all that money. And, and the real estate kind of helped me not pay a lot of taxes, as yeah. you're probably familiar with. <laughs> yeah. And, and how many units do you own now? I have 55 units. 55 total. Cool. So just in closing here, we've talked here for almost an hour, and we've, we've covered a lot, I know, and you've shared some great nuggets of, of wisdom and advice. But looking back, is there couple things that you would point to and say, hey, I wish I would have done that differently. Or are there things you looked at and say, I'm so glad I'm di- I did that. So mistakes or advice here in, in wrapping up? That's a tough one. Um, you know, I'm pretty happy, I guess, with the way things turned out. I know I could have done things a lot faster and, and a lot more efficient. And I still know that I could do I could grow a lot faster if I if I'm just more focused and more more clear on on what I want to do. And but you kind of get that shiny object syndrome and you kind of chase all these different ideas and these different strategies. And I think that what I would recommend is, is find a, a role model or find a mentor, someone who you want to be or be like, and, and just go all in on their, their strategy. If, if they resonate with you, um, I mean, cause you can be successful in multiple different ways, but I think you have to choose one and you have to really go after it and, and become the best at that thing. And, and, uh, and I just I would just tell everyone just to, to find that one thing for you and, and go 100% towards it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for sharing your story. Great advice, everybody. Again, that's Logan, net worth of $3.75 million. So thanks again, Logan. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.